This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Lorena Garcia, Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate in Colorado. Thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Of course. So let's start out with the big question. Why are you running for the United States Senate? That is a big question. And it's one that I get every day. And, you know, when I answer it, I often realize that there's so many reasons that have led me to make this decision because my answer is, is often different. For the sake of, of, you know, not spending too much time answering that question, it really comes down to the fact that the, the Senate is who is responsible for, a, for confirming judges and confirming people who run the agencies that make rules and implement programs that impact our lives every day. You know, policy happens and the Senate works on policy, the House works on policy, but but the people who hire our judges that have lifetime appointments and the people who who appoint people that are supposed to run our education system in the United States and run healthcare and run and be in charge of our foreign affairs is the Senate. And for me, it's so important to make sure that we have somebody who will objectively look at who is being appointed, look at their qualifications, their character, their integrity, and their ethics when deciding whether or not to confirm somebody. And what what exactly are your values? What policies and ideas are you running on? And how are they different from what your incumbent is doing right now? So I'm running on a platform where I believe that everyone should have the opportunity to succeed and thrive economically. And in order for that to happen, I believe strongly that we need to implement a single-payer healthcare system because we know that healthcare is a leading cause for many families to have to file bankruptcy, you know, or many people make the, the very challenging decision of not buying health insurance or not going to the doctor appointment because it's so expensive. The other point of economic opportunity is also education. You know, we see, we used to see our education system as an equalizer, but the reality is, especially our higher education system, the only thing that it's doing is it's perpetuating the wealth divide. You have people who can afford the outrageous, outlandish higher education tuition fees, and they don't have to be stuck with, with enormous student debt when they graduate. But then you have people who can't afford the cost of college. So they take out these loans and then it delays and it, it blocks them from being able to, to establish wealth for themselves when they graduate. They can't buy a house because their student loans are so high. They can't upgrade their car. I mean, I'm, I'm 36 and the first time I ever actually bought a car was like three months ago. And, you know, the idea of the fact that we're pricing out entire generations of of students from accessing a higher education is 
is something that's hugely important to me. Um, and so what I would like to see is tuition-free public education and in, in our higher education in public institutions. And the other thing that, that I care deeply about is as we're shifting to a 100% renewable energy and green economy through a, a Green New Deal, we need to make sure that we are also preserving the dignity of the of the fossil fuel workforce because we'll be displacing a whole bunch of of really talented and experienced people and this is such an exciting time that why not work with and rely on those who have been the innovators and the the entrepreneurs of energy that will help us move and shift into a, a model that's going to make our planet actually sustainable. I mean, this is, this is awesome and it's exciting. And I can't wait to be able to start pushing forward with all of these policy ideas. Um, what my incumbent is not doing is any of that. Um, he, you know, he believes that, that he, one of the, the bills that he introduced was a bill that provided tax credits to businesses that offered and corporations that offered student loan forgiveness or to, to, to pay their, their employees student loans. First off, companies already know that that's a benefit and that's attractive for workers. So they're already doing it. The only thing that bill is going to do is reward companies for doing something they're already doing. It's not going to help the massive amounts of individuals who are still stuck with unpayable student debt. He, my incumbent, Cory Gardner, he also doesn't really pay attention to his constituency and understanding what their major plight is in healthcare. He voted to repeal Obamacare multiple times, you know? I mean, he just, he's so out of touch and it's time that he goes. Before we dig into the issues, this primary will be very hotly contested. There are a lot of Democrats with a lot more money and political connections than you seeking to take on Cory Gardner. What makes you not just the best candidate, but also a viable one? There is a lot of people already in this seat. You know, we have three candidates that have run races and have lost two of which have run statewide races and have lost multiple times. We have, but the reality is that we, we are in this place and in this time where what people are looking for is something new. People are looking for a new type of leadership. You know, we are tired of the same old, same old and the status quo. And what I think what, politics and what the media have not caught up to is what viable truly should be. Viable is no longer that you have been a politician before. You know, that's no longer something that people are focusing on and putting their 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 eggs in that basket. And what makes me a viable candidate is that my career has been in running nonprofit organizations that have fought for social justice here in Colorado. And they've been statewide organizations where because of that, I have built a statewide network where people do know me and they've seen the work that I've done and I can be trusted. And being able to go back to 
these individuals in these communities and saying, now we can have even greater impact if we work together is exciting for them. And the amount of support that I've already received from, from people all over the, all over the country, in fact, has been really encouraging. How exactly have you demonstrated the leadership that you're talking about? I have, um, gosh, this is like going through a, a resume, which is, which can be kind of boring, but I have, uh, when I was at um, nine to five, the National Association of Working Women, you know, I had worked on policies, crafting policies that were that were brought from the community. You know, they were issues around wage transparency. There were issues around parental leave for school activities. Um, I trained hundreds of women on how to combat sexual harassment in the workplace. You know, when I was the executive director, well, I first started as a policy director of the Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights. And I built this organization from being an awesome organization that served young people into being an awesome organization that served young people. And that was also a policy powerhouse in Colorado that was the only reproductive justice focused organization in Colorado. You know, we worked on issues like banning the practice of shackling in pregnant inmates, which is something that you think, how could that have even been something that happened? You know, but it was, it was working with individuals that were so disenfranchised that no one even knew the suffering that they experienced. You know, we, we, while I was there, I, I was the architect of, of a bill that made it illegal for schools to teach the the highly ineffective abstinence only until marriage curriculum in schools you know and since then i've also been working hard in um i was the executive director of an organization that worked in Nepal and Nicaragua so my experience in 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 foreign affairs has also I've also been able to accumulate some of that. And that was such an interesting and humbling experience for me. And a lot of the, a lot of the models that, that I implemented in the work that I, that I did in those countries came from my background in community organizing, where solutions come directly from the communities that are mostly, that are most greatly impacted, you know, and I think that now as the executive director of the Colorado Statewide Parent Coalition, where I work predominantly with immigrant Spanish-speaking families, being able to build, especially now with such a horrible, volatile environment for immigrants, to be able to work with these members of our community and building a safe space for them where they can be out in the community, where they feel safe going to trainings, where they're learning how to be advocates is something that that I think is what what exemplifies my leadership in being able to to serve as an effective U.S. senator. And right now we have a lot of folks in the Democratic Party kind of trying to out progressive each other. Clearly, you are touting a background of actually fighting for progressive values, what differentiates you in terms of policy from kind of 
I guess what I would call the establishment progressives? <laughs> uh, you know, I think for starters, I was the very I was the very first person that that here in Colorado in the in this race that came out 100% in support of a Green New Deal because I knew it was it was the right way to go. You know, I also believe strongly that we need to abolish ICE. No one else is saying that. You know, we I believe that we need to have tuition-free higher education. No one else is saying that. You know, so I think that where there might be people that are using, you know, words and phrases that pull well, the policies that I have, the policies that I've talked about and, and have laid out plans for shows that this isn't just talk for me, that these are solutions that have been bred and, and that have been, uh, they've been, um, people have been talking about them. They've been explored within different communities and it's, it's the policies that people want. And because of that, as somebody who has in my entire career believed in policy being developed from those directly affected, obviously I'm going to say yes, 100% on this. And I will fight tooth and nail to figure out how we can make it possible. And I'm also not going to skirt around the issue. You know, there's so many times when, you know, when we talk about um, equity and people like the word equity and that we need to focus on equity but so many people don't really quite even understand what equity means. And when you can actually show and exemplify in the work that you've done, policy rooted in equity actually does and how it looks, I think that shows that, that yes, I am the progressive candidate in the Democratic ticket. So let's jump right into the issues. We have not a lot. But we have a fair deal of progressive Democrats saying that they want to abolish ICE. But what that means to politicians and candidates versus activists is very important. You probably more than most, if not all of the candidates I've spoken to, will understand this dynamic. And to frame the conversation we're going to have here, I want to read a quote from Justice David Josiah Brewer's dissent in the Fong Yu Ting case. Now, this is from 1893, and I go back here because this is the Supreme Court ruling in which a majority validated and expanded the Chinese Exclusion Act, which criminalized undocumented status and put detention and deportation under federal jurisdiction, even though neither practice is mentioned in the Constitution. Quote, and this is in regards to deportation, involves first an arrest, a deprival of liberty, and second, a removal from home, from family, from business, from property. It needs no citation of authorities to support the proposition that deportation is punishment. Everyone knows that to be forcibly taken away from home and family, and friends and business and property and sent across the ocean to a distant land is punishment, and oftentimes the most severe and cruel. Would you agree with this dissent against the Chinese Exclusion Act and specifically in this context, um, I'm asking, would you support overturning the Supreme Court decision, which means overturning the ruling that detention and deportation are constitutional responses to undocumented status being criminalized? Yes, yes, absolutely. 100%. I mean, there is nothing, there's nothing good that comes from ICE. Nothing. 
the only thing that our tax dollars are going to is trauma, torture, uh, slavery. It's going towards putting people in situations where they can't receive health care. It's tearing apart families. It's destroying lives. I don't want my taxpayers going to that. I don't want to be part of any system that promotes a, a process of stripping people bare of, of their dignity and of their ability to just fight for a better life. What does it mean in your mind to truly decriminalize migration and movement? Uh, you know, we are, are, we're human beings and we migrate all the time. I mean, we migrate from state to state, from country to country, and to criminalize migration is criminalizing a, a natural human instinct. And I think that uh, in order to, when I see a decriminalization of migration, I see that as where we have a system where we are much more welcoming, that our borders are not barriers. And our borders are nothing more than just a line that says, this is where the U.S. starts and this is where Mexico ends. You know, and I don't think that we need to be, we should never, ever, ever be arresting people who have decided to move or have fled or have sought asylum or refugee, re uh, refuge. One of the, perhaps the knee-jerk response we hear from Democrats and liberals to abolishing ICE and decriminalization is, well, we don't support open borders. And what open borders means in this is kind of playing off of the Republican dog whistle. We have seen quite literally Republicans, including Donald Trump, in ads where they use the term open borders show a mass of brown people moving uh, across a border. Um, which I think kind of exemplifies what open borders means. Um, context that's not often given is that prior to the Chinese Exclusion Act, for white people, open borders existed in the United States. So the law of the land was open borders until it became a problem of non-white people existing in this country. What are your thoughts on this term and what it truly means in terms of policy? I think that we as U.S. citizens experience and know exactly what open borders are. Because with our passport, we can go anywhere. We don't have to wait for weeks and months to have our visas approved. We can go anywhere. And, you know, and I think that there is a way that we can say, why can't everybody, you know, with their own passports, go wherever they want. Why do we have to grant permission for somebody who lives in, or why does it, like whether it's granting permission or having a natural disaster for somebody who lives somewhere else to come here? We are not, we don't, who are we to say who can come here or not? And on the flip side here is foreign policy it's a pretty well-known, on the left, we often hear the statement, the U.S. creates refugees and then refuses to let them into the country when they do become refugees. 
Um, what exactly is your foreign policy perspective? I think that we hold a lot of responsibility for the for the countries that are experiencing a lot of corrupt government, for countries that are experiencing you know, a lot of gang violence, we hold a lot of that responsibility. And the fact that we hold that responsibility and yet we're not willing to, to support them, you know, for example, with the recent caravan that came through, why are these countries still in these positions? We have to go back decades and seeing where did U the U.S. play its role in keeping these countries from actually advancing. And I think that is where we need to have a microscopic investigation of how we have truly impacted the inability for economies across the, across the world from actually growing, from actually developing. Because as I, you know, going back to the beginning, it's economic opportunity. Why are they, why are they fleeing? They're fleeing because they're in impoverished areas and, and poverty can lead to a lot of violence and can lead to a lot of, of harmful area, harmful ways in which these countries operate. And so they flee. But if we were to actually, and it's not only governments either. I mean, this is also corporations. This is hugely on corporations because if corporations valued their workforce in these foreign governments where they were in these foreign countries where they actually paid them better, where they paid them and showed them the dignity of what it is to be a human being, then I think that we would see these countries improving in a sense where we wouldn't have we wouldn't see thousands and thousands and thousands of people fleeing. The, the reality is, I mean, you talk to you you can talk to, you know, ten immigrants and 10 migrants that have come here and i'm not going to give you a number because i don't really know what it is but i bet you the majority of them don't want to stay here they want to go back home and then it, they want to live at home but they're here because there's an opportunity here to make money so that they can live better lives back home and the opportunity exists here because we have too many jobs and we have workers here and when we talk about you know jobs and workers what what does that mean in terms of the economic justice you're talking about? If we have, we have so many industries and so many companies that are unable to fill the open jobs that they have, whether it's in IT or in agriculture or in green energy. And then there's tons of people that are looking for work that can be trained or probably already have the skill set that why not, why can't we say, great, help us, come and work for us and help us. You know, I think that, that we have seen with, with economic justice, going back to that, we, because we have been, because this country has been, has refused to, has refused to acknowledge its need, uh, we support and we promote as a country wage theft. We promote and support as a country mistreatment of undocumented workers when there's an easy solution of just legitimizing 
undocumented workers, whether, and even, and even, you know, and I, I could even talk about sex workers if you want to with, with the whole economic justice thing, because if we are legitimizing the work that these individuals are doing for whatever industry, for whatever country, then they're going to have recourse to be able to fight wage theft. They're going to have recourse to be able to fight harassment, sexual harassment. They're going to have recourse to be able to um, ensure that, that they work reasonable hours, that they get a living wage, and that they're able to make a living so that their families can thrive. So I would like to talk about sex workers, but I'd specifically like to frame it in terms of FOSTA-SESTA, which is the legislation uh, passed recently that was purported to be fighting sex trafficking, but sex workers lobbied very hard against for endangering them. Um, Already, police departments have reported that FOSTA-SESTA has impacted the safety of sex work um, and increased the homicide rates for sex workers. You know, earlier today, presidential candidate Kamala Harris said that she supports decriminalizing sex work. At the same time, she was one of the main proponents of FOSTA-SESTA. When we talk about sex work as a labor issue, how are you going to put that into legislation and not just have it be about words? So when I was the executive director of Color, the Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, we were working with um, a group uh, that a group of organized sex workers in Colorado to potentially bring forward a bill that legitimized sex work. And legitimizing sex work is actually taking a step further than just decriminalizing sex work. The, the reason why we were, we were getting ready to really push that, and unfortunately we weren't able to find legislators that were willing to take on that, that, that bill. Um, but we were fighting for it because the reality is when, when you have uh, when you can actually legitimize sex work, and we've seen it, we, it works in, Las, in, in Nevada, excuse me, not Las Vegas, but in Nevada, why can't we actually then show how that works and say, why not just make it possible for people who want to engage in that industry to engage in that industry in a safe way where, as well, they have protections, and I think that that's, you know, in a, in a policy, it's really just about writing down the policy and saying that it's legitimized. And there's these protections that they receive that, that any other, that any other employee receives or any other contractor receives. Like these are their recourses that they can, they can benefit from. This is how they, you know, that they would file their taxes just like the same as anybody else. And, you know, I think it's, it's so much simpler than people make it out to be. And I think any economic justice conversation needs to be contextualized by what economic system we support in the first place. Recently, we've seen some high-profile discussions of democratic socialism with Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez becoming kind of stars of the progressive Democratic Party. At the same time, we've seen a lot of misunderstanding of what democratic socialism is. Obviously, that is actually a system that aims not just to alter the economy, but our political democracy overall. Um, where do you stand um, in terms of how you view capitalism and socialism? I think that 
there's a way to have, if, if you know, if you can call it capitalistic socialism, <laughs> because I think that, you know, I mean, we all live in a place where my, my wife and I, we had a small business where we liked, you know, we enjoyed when we would sell something and we would benefit from it, you know, but I think that there's also a place where we need to ensure that, that the top 1% don't have the majority of the wealth in the country. You know, I think that's where we need to start looking at how do we see, how can we implement policies that, that help share the wealth? And it's not about one person making the money and then handing out checks to everybody else. It's about making sure that, you know, you increase the minimum wage. And to be honest, $15, woohoo, and it's not enough because $15 is not a living wage in many parts of the country. You know, and so I would like to see us even be be stronger on what a minimum wage should be. You know, and then I think that there also needs to be elements where those who have more are responsible for more. You know, it's going back to the proven techniques of progressive tax. We need to make sure that everybody is contributing and paying their fair share and not putting the undue burden on those that don't have. A question that's being asked right now is in a system where people are left starving, should we even have a system where billionaires can exist? <laughs> no, no, I, I don't think so. And it's, it's interesting that you asked that because my wife and I were having a question just or having a conversation about that about a couple weeks ago, where she was very adamant that there needs to be that that there needs to be a cap on how much someone should be able to make. You know, and, and I agree with her. I think that if, if there are, if there are billionaires in this country, then that automatically means that there are people living in extreme poverty. And healthcare is perhaps the biggest issue of our time, at least on the Democratic side. Democrats are really prioritizing healthcare as the main issue for 2020. Where do you stand on healthcare? What system do you think we should implement and how should we go about doing so? Single payer, baby. Yes, that is what we need to do. We need to go into a single payer system. We need to regulate all our healthcare costs. I mean, the fact that we are paying four times more in this country for an MRI than, than we are in any other developed country is absurd. We have to have, we have to have a lot more regulation on prescription costs. We have to have a lot more regulation on even just administrative costs. And if we can get rid of that high overhead administration costs with individual insurance plans, with individual hospitals, and have a single payer system, then more money is going to go towards quality healthcare services for all of us. Hey, everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates 
causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. And you're talking a lot about you know, fully inclusive healthcare. Does your single payer vision include care for reproductive justice, gender affirming care for trans people, and other social justice oriented healthcare priorities? Oh, heck yeah. You know, I mean, like, we need to make sure that that health coverage for the LGBTQ plus community is is a basic tenant of a single payer healthcare system, you know, whether it's like hormone treatment or even just that there needs to be strict, strict oversight in discrimination that can happen. You know, I think that the other thing is making sure that rural communities have access to healthcare services in their own communities. You know, I was visiting a community in Northeastern Colorado where the people there have to drive at least 30 minutes before they can get to a health clinic, not even a hospital, a health clinic, you know, and that what good is a single payer healthcare system if they don't actually have access to healthcare facilities and quality healthcare facilities in their own area. At the very beginning of this conversation, you mentioned judicial nominees and cabinet nominees. The Senate is unique um, in that the upper chamber of Congress is the only one that does vote on these nominees. Um, But we've seen Democrats actually vote for a surprising number of Donald Trump's judicial and cabinet nominees um, while standing very vocally against folks like Betsy DeVos. Even progressives ended up voting for a lot of Trump's uh, cabinet and judicial nominees. Uh, And I think that's interesting in that these judicial and cabinet nominees don't really differ in terms of ideology from the ones who did face Democratic opposition. What would your approach be to these nominations and confirmations? I would be looking at what is the job required? What is the mission of the position in which they are being nominated? I'd be looking at their history. I'd be looking at their qualifications. I'd be looking at their character. I'd be looking at signs of their integrity and where they've exemplified or not exemplified um, acts, their acts in, in, in upholding ethics. You know, I think that there's, um, there's a lot of things that, that I would be looking at in order to, to have, to, to confirm somebody. And I think that that's one of the things that has fallen short is we've seen people confirming somebody just because of what's on paper and not looking holistically at a nominee. And what traits, uh, what, statements and background, what exactly would you consider disqualifying for a nominee? Well, for example, Ben Carson, completely unqualified to be leading HUD because he has no experience 
in housing and, and urban development. Uh, you know, Betsy DeVos, completely unqualified because she has readily been outspoken against public education. And the education department is supposed to be, <laughs> you know, supporting and running our country's public education system. You know, I mean, you have uh, Judge Kavanaugh, who has, who absolutely showed terrible character, lack of integrity, and no commitment to ethics and upholding and upholding what an objective justice should be. He never should have been confirmed. And do you believe the sexual assault allegations against Brett Kavanaugh? I do. I absolutely believe them. And what do you think should be done in response to them? I think he needs to be further investigated. I think the House needs to call for for impeachment, and I think the Senate needs to investigate. And obviously, there's a lot of talk about the under the Trump administration, the Senate's investigative powers that haven't been utilized due to Republican control. How would you wield those powers should Democrats have any ability to do so? I think that one of the things about um, political office is, unfortunately, you always have a letter after your name. And so you feel beholden to protecting or tearing down somebody that doesn't have that same letter or has the same letter. And I think that that's the reason why we've seen such um, barricading happening right now with the Senate when we're when we when we're calling on impeachment for these different characters for these different people. And I would approach it as objectively as I humanly possibly can. And I have experience in looking, you know, I people have can comment on how objective I can be. Um, and I think that when, when approaching this, anytime that there is call for investigation or impeachment, then you can't say no. You have to do it because there is a call for a reason. And one of the biggest concerns about passing major progressive legislation like Medicare for All or the Green New Deal is the legislative filibuster. Democrats are currently in the minority in the Senate, and the odds of Democrats ever achieving a veto-proof majority in our lifetime is slim to none. We haven't seen any evidence to indicate that Republicans will ever sign on to major Democratic legislation, perhaps any Democratic legislation. Do you support eliminating the legislative filibuster? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that if there's policy that's being brought forward, and it's policy that has been brought forward, which, you know, you would assume that has been brought forward with good intent because it's what has been called on by the people, it should always have the opportunity to be debated on and voted on. And I think that that goes the same with, um, we need to also look at the powers at, of chairs of committees. You know, I mean, like chairs can never let a bill see the light of day. And I don't think that's appropriate. That's, I think that's an abuse of power. And in terms of big proposals that kind of alter what we know as democratic norms or self-imposed norms of Congress, uh, there's a lot of talk about packing the Supreme Court, um, which means adding seats to the Supreme Court because our current uh, system, what we go by now is not mandated by the Constitution. Um, do you support packing the courts? Oh, yes. I, I totally would. 
let's go to 11. We can, we can get, we can do 11. And I think that, you know, if we get truly objective judges who truly believe in, you know, the constitution, the law of the land and upholding the law of the land and not on running their own agendas, I think that, you know, we'll, we can, we can at least start to restore the integrity of the Supreme Court. And going back to foreign policy for a moment, we're seeing right now the U.S. political class overwhelmingly support um, Juan Guaido in Venezuela. Uh, for context to our listeners, if you haven't listened to our episodes on Venezuela, Juan Guaido rotated into power in the National Assembly. He's a member of the opposition, which is a loose coalition of parties opposed to Maduro. He does support kind of a neoliberal capitalist agenda, which includes opening oil up to foreign investors, uh, denationalization. Uh, so it's not surprising that he has overwhelming support in the U.S. Um, right now, the U.S. is floating all options. Juan Guaido has said he supports all options, including potential military intervention. Um, and we have Democrats speaking out against military intervention, but it's very important to note that there's not a lot of history of military intervention by the U.S. and Latin America. For the most part, it's been the CIA supporting right-wing coups against, uh, you know, more left-leaning, perceived at least as socialist or communist um, presidents. Beyond military intervention, which really, if there is any military intervention, it would most likely happen from Colombia or Brazil, who do have right-wing leaders. What, what are your thoughts on U.S. intervention in Venezuela? I think our intervention needs to be in providing aid. I mean, people are starving and people are getting killed. And I think what we need to do is make sure that we, where we can't, we can support them by getting food there, by ensuring that there's, you know, we send brigades of, of doctors without borders over there. We, you know, I think that those are the things that we need to do because, you know, we can look back in history and, and we can see how time and time and over and over and over and over and over again, where, the U.S. intervenes and because we have this, you know, superficial desire of helping their democracy when, when really we discover that it's all because of selfish motivations like this and it doesn't go well. And I think that what we need to do is ensure that, that the people who are suffering have the resources that they need to be able to fight for what they want. And currently, the Red Cross and the UN are denouncing the US for politicizing humanitarian aid. Maduro is actually accepting hundreds of tons of humanitarian aid from countries who are not calling for regime change. Um, and the US is currently accusing uh, Maduro of rejecting humanitarian aid. We can look at that very simply and see that that's not true. Um, and at the same time, a lot of folks are saying that the U.S. is pushing for humanitarian aid now when it has imposed sanctions that U.N. Uh, Special Rapporteur on Venezuela, Alfred de Zayas, who we've spoken to, he is the first U.N. Rapporteur to visit Venezuela in 20 years. He described these sanctions as, quote, economic warfare uh, comparable with medieval sieges of towns and villages. Um, do you support these sanctions 
And do you think that it's appropriate for the U.S. to be sending what the U.N. Red Cross are calling politicized humanitarian aid as it helps drive this economic crisis? I think that, I think the motivations under which um, the United States has, well, I would say that the, that the administration has um, called for certain actions against and in Venezuela are, are disgraceful. And I think that what we need to do is we need to make sure that we, because we have, we have a lot of resources that we can lend, we can give to the people in Venezuela so that they're not starving to death, so that they're not suffering from unmet medical needs. And you're right, because we're not the only country that, that offers aid in this way. There's so many other countries that are already doing it. But I think the fact that there's these sanctions in place, I don't, I don't support them. And there's been a lot of dispute about the electoral process in Venezuela. Jimmy Carter said that out of over 90 electoral processes he'd witnessed, it was the best. Uh, Venezuela has a process of both using paper balloting um, and digital balloting with fingerprints. An interesting point that we've had guests bring up on this podcast is that the opposition has for about two decades... Um, 15 years, declared every election where they lost illegitimate, um, whether it be Chavez or Maduro, but then claim legitimacy when they win elections. Um, And that is the claim the U.S. is making. They're saying that the opposition is legitimate because they won the National Assembly elections, which occurred under the same exact system that they say illegitimizes other elections within the country. If these if if maduro is illegitimate because of these elections why are the other elections legitimate when the us supports them um and what are your thoughts on the electoral process in venezuela i think it's ridiculous that the united states feels that they can call some other country's election legitimate or not that's left for the, that country to to decide and i think that they're I think their electoral process sounds good. I mean, in theory, it sounds great. And I think in practice, we've seen that it's, you know, there's been flaws. And I think we can see the same thing for our electoral process. You know, I mean, it sounds good, but actually doesn't mean our electoral process doesn't mean sound good. We have, elect- we have the electoral college that needs to go. But we're talking about Venezuela. And I think that there's, I, I go back to the, to the presumptuous claims that, United States can call the legitimacy of an election of another country. And what are your ideas to legitimize U.S. elections to ensure that everyone has access to, everyone can not only vote, but also can vote in a system where no one vote is counted more than any other? Oh, I think one, I think we, I mean, starting from the top, we need to get rid of the electoral college. I think that will help legitimize our elections more. I think that we need to, I am in favor of, of automatic voter registration. I think that if we can eliminate the barrier of having to register, I think that we'll see more, more people engaged in the process. Um, you know, and I also, I mean, Colorado, 
has one of the most secure electoral processes. I mean, 100% paper ballots, you know, and I think that with with 100% paper ballots and with the time frame of recounting and, and all of that, we have, I mean, we have one of the most secure processes that we can, I think we need to put a standard across the country that it shouldn't matter what state you live in. It shouldn't matter what state you live in to feel confident in, in the electoral process. You should be able to feel confident in the electoral process because it's uniform across the country. And in terms of ballot access and who's allowed to vote, in Florida recently, we saw voters approve an amendment that would grant most individuals convicted of a felony the right to vote once they leave prison. Um, what more progressive folks have been advocating for is not disenfranchising anyone based on felony conviction or incarceration status, given the overwhelming racial discrimination in the criminal justice system, especially of Black and Indigenous folks. Do you believe that we do need to strip the right to vote from anyone? No, I'm, I'm thrilled of what Florida did. Like that was a, that was a huge surprise and such a welcome surprise. I mean, that's incredible. And I don't think that because you are convicted of a crime or a felony, excuse me, that you should not still have the right to vote. And what is your criminal justice platform? Man, let's talk about the the prison industrial complex. I think that we have set up a system where we pay private industries thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars per inmate so that then they can turn around and use them, paying them $1 a day maybe to turn out products that then they sell for $20, $30 each. You know, I think that we need to get rid of private prisons for sure. Um, I think that we need to completely reform and overhaul our sentencing, um, our sentencing practices. And I think we need to, um, across the country, we need to get rid of the death penalty. You know, we have, there's so much, um, there's so much discrimination in the prison industrial complex. And we have so many more people of color disproportionately represented in prison and who have outrageously longer and higher sentences for crimes that that are equal to those of their white white counterparts and maybe they're not even serving time. You know, I think that we need to we need to look at more of restorative justice models for um for nonviolent crime as well. And I think that um we need to make we need to work on our drug policy because one of the reasons why we see so many low income people of color in prisons is for drug charges. And by criminalizing people who are using or, you know, even people who are trying to make a buck, we're not actually addressing the problem because we see we see drugs as a crime issue and we don't actually see it for what it is, which is public, which is a public health issue. And what are your thoughts on prison abolition? You know, I've actually, I've never thought about it. Hmm. Interesting concept. I'm going to have to, yeah. I'm going to have to look into it. Okay. Awesome. I'll let you, um, I'll let you get back to me. Yeah, on that. I um, will. 
this might also be a get back to me on that question. Um, are you familiar with police abolition? I'm not. Okay, we'll get back to both of those. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> and one of the one of the most important questions I try to ask to every candidate is, who are you accountable to, and how are you going to ensure that you can actually be held accountable? I am accountable to the people in Colorado. If I am elected, I am accountable to the people of Colorado. Those who voted for me, those who didn't, those who can't. And the way that I make myself available to be held accountable is transparency. I believe 100% in transparency. Um, you know, whether that means transparency in uh, campaign finance or transparency in motivations for votes. I think that being candid is important. And also just being available. You know, it's one of the things that's really frustrating about Senator Cory Gardner is that he's completely unavailable. He locks his doors sometimes to his, his, his district offices. He, you know, never engages in real conversation with, with his constituents. You know, he doesn't, his phone, if, if you call 10 times, someone might answer once. You know, and it, that's just not, that's not putting yourself in service of the people. And looking more into racial justice, do you support reparations for Black Americans descended from enslaved Africans and those terrorized by Jim Crow? I do. I absolutely do. And I also, in the same, same line as that, I also completely support um, restoring complete sovereignty to Indigenous communities. And what does that look like? I think that in our constitution, we have, a while ago, we, we eliminated a step when revising treaties of actually working with indigenous communities in which those treaties would, would, would affect. I mean, the, the U.S. government, the Congress has, has right now legally can, can ratify treaties, can change treaties without, without the approval or support from the indigenous communities. And that's, to me, that's completely um, robbing them of their sovereignty. And that's just, that needs to change. And wrapping up, if folks are inspired by you, if they want to learn more about you, where can they find you online and how can they get involved in your campaign? Yes, you can visit my website at lorenaforsenate.com. You can also find me on social media, uh, the, on Facebook, it's Lorena for Senate, and it's F-O-R. On Twitter, it's Lorena for Senate. And on Instagram, it's Lorena number four Senate. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. And we wish you the best of luck on your campaign. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Of course. And lastly, to our listeners, if you want to hear more interviews with great candidates like Lorena Garcia, make sure to follow us on social media, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.